kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are all his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. In our last study, the Apostle Paul began an evangelistic assault on the idolatry that had overtaken the city of Athens. His preaching began in the synagogue, but quickly, and evidently due to apathy rather than aggression, moved into the Agora, the city marketplace, where he encountered and entered into dialogue with some of the popular schools of philosophy for which the city was so famous. The two schools that Luke mentions were the Stoics and the Epicureans. In our last study, we examined some of the philosophical differences between these two, but there were also certain points in which they agreed. Both groups were materialists, meaning they denied any personal individual existence after death or any possibility of a resurrection. In fact, the denial of resurrection seems to have been one of the core principles on which all the Grecian philosophers agreed. Physical life was a prison from which man longed to escape. Good philosophy would help one endure the sentence while it lasted and hasten the escape as much as possible. In the local mythology, it was said that when the god Apollo founded the Areopagus, the governing council of Athens which features so prominently in this narrative, his speech included this line, But when the dust has drawn up the blood of man, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. The Greek word anastasis, from which resurrection is translated, literally means to stand up again. Thus, Athenian culture was established on the principle that once a man goes down in death, 
he cannot stand up again. And yet the resurrection is a vital part of the gospel message. And Paul refused to compromise that principle of the gospel, even in a society which found it absurd. This, I think, is a powerful example for contemporary evangelists who encounter opposition to ideas like authoritative hierarchy, submission, or one person having ownership of another. There may be a temptation to save Christianity from biblical terminology and ancient concepts that would make it offensive to a particular audience, but whatever Paul shows us here about the need for accommodation, he does not show a pattern for compromising the message. Acts 17.18 says that when Paul met the philosophers and their students, he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. To be sure, because of the barrier between Paul's thinking and that of his audience, they did not at first understand what he was saying. But that did not keep him back from saying it or provoke him to alter the message in any respect. At the conclusion of our last study, those who heard Paul in the marketplace took and brought him to the Areopagus. That was where we left the narrative. In this lesson, we will examine the speech that followed. But to set the stage for that examination, I want to reconsider the setting in which this takes place. Scholars are divided as to why Paul met with the Areopagus and what he was trying to accomplish in this discourse. Remember that the Areopagus, which originally was the authoritative council in the government of Athens, had become in the time of Roman domination something less than it had been in ages past in terms of power. But it was still very much a judicial body. It was not merely a philosopher's club or some sort of ancient toastmaster's society as it's sometimes characterized. This was the very court before which Socrates was tried and condemned to death, incidentally for the very crimes of which Paul had been accused by those who brought him here, proclaiming foreign gods. We should not think, simply because these people were such prolific idolaters, that they did not care what people said regarding religion. In the ancient world, religion was a major force in the binding together of a society, and the proclamation of foreign gods could easily result in the corruption, weakening, and possibly even the disillusion of the society. This was especially true if the foreign gods carried with them a philosophical understanding about life that was fundamentally different from what the society was built on. For example, the Christian concept of resurrection being inserted into the Greek culture where resurrection was institutionally denied. It would have been wise to be alarmed if you were an Epicurean or a Stoic because Christianity was fundamentally opposed to those ideologies and the two would not coexist peacefully. The language of Luke gives every indication that Paul did not venture to the Areopagus by his own decision as simply the next step in his evangelistic program. He was arrested, taken, and brought, and he was charged. May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Acts 17, 19-20. The clearer articulation of the charge came back in verse 18. Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. 
It seems that the audience mistook Paul to be treating resurrection, anastasis, as a feminine deity, perhaps a personification of the concept, which was fairly common in Greco-Roman mythology, and saw her as some kind of consort to Jesus, thus the plural foreign gods. N.T. Wright notes that if this trial had gone poorly, it could have placed Paul in the most dangerous position yet faced in his ministry. He was, after all, alone in a city with no disciples to watch out for him or help him escape if the scene turned very aggressive. Throughout the centuries, Bible readers have come to regard Paul's sermon at Mars Hill as one of the greatest ever preached in the history of Christianity. However, in all reality, we should probably regard this as more of a legal defense than a sermon. And we will find that, great as it was, it was not especially appreciated by those who originally heard it. Verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, that is, he took a position in the view of the whole body of judges, and said, As with other speeches in Acts, this one is almost certainly an abbreviation or summary, but that's not to say that these are not Paul's words. Most likely the summary was Paul's own, and given by him to Luke, rather than Luke taking the liberty to restructure what he had been told from Paul. But how is this speech structured? Even in a simplified or abbreviated presentation, the communicative genius of Paul is on display here. Moore notes that it conforms to the rhetorical form of the day, consisting of three parts called the exodium, the probatio, and the peroratio. The exodium is the introduction in which the purpose of the speech is stated. The probatio is the body of the speech in which proofs of a proposition are set forth. And the peroratio is the conclusion in which an admonition is made on the basis of the established proposition. Pole Hill sees a chiastic structure in the speech as well, consisting of an ABCBA pattern. Here's a quote from his New American Commentary on Acts. Verses 22 through 23 introduce the main theme, the ignorance of the pagan worship. Verses 24 through 25 present the true object of worship, the Creator God, and the folly of idolatrous worship with temples and sacrifices. Verses 26 through 27 deal with the true relationship of human beings to their Creator, the central theme of the chiasm. Verse 28 provides a transition, capping off the argument of the relationship of persons to God and providing the basis for a renewed attack on idolatry in verse 29. The final two verses return to the original theme. The time of ignorance was now over. With Revelation came a call to repent in light of the coming judgment and the resurrection of Christ. I'm generally skeptical of chiasms and find them to be grossly overdiagnosed, but this one appears to be a fairly strong suggestion and worthy of consideration. One might resist the idea of Paul using rhetorical convention or artistic form in his preaching because of his comments to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 3-5. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, he said, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Critical scholars use this alleged discrepancy as another evidence that the Paul of Acts was a literary invention, very different in his personality as well as his theology, than the real Paul who we meet in his epistles. Others suggest that Paul tried persuasive words of human wisdom in Athens, was unimpressed with the results, and moved on to another method in Corinth. But I do not think either of these ideas are the best option for reconciling these issues. Rather, I would suggest that Paul's point to Corinth was that he did not use his rhetorical skill to present himself as someone great so that he would be exalted in the minds of the Corinthians. Certainly when he used rhetorical skill at Athens, it was with the same careful restraint. What we see in Paul's speech is not self-serving manipulation, but artful skill in presenting the truth and exalting the Christ. This brings us to the most important matter for interpreting the Mars Hill Discourse, regardless of what may be debated or established about the setting or structure of the speech, it is very important to establish the source of Paul's material. As we work through the presentation, we will find numerous citations of pagan poets and philosophers, most of which belonged to the Stoic school. When Paul cites these men, he does not present their claims as a foil against his own ideas— Rather, he uses their words as the vehicle by which to deliver his premise and sometimes as the authority by which to establish the acceptability of the things he is claiming. It should not be surprising that Paul could do this. He was, after all, the son of a rich family raised in Tarsus, one of the great university cities of the Roman Empire, so he had ample opportunities for an exceptional education. But why would Paul do this? It cannot be dismissed as a coincidence because he calls attention to it himself in verse 28. Here is my suggestion. As in Lystra, Paul in Athens recognizes the condition of his audience. They are pagans, thus to appeal to the Hebrew scripture would not be impressive and in this case might exacerbate the charge that he was proclaiming foreign gods. However, Paul does not resort to what is often called natural theology— by this I mean that Paul does not try to present a basic God, stripped clean of Hebrew biblical ideas on whom all the religions and ideologies of the earth could unite. Rather, Paul is establishing that the God who was desired by the nations, but had not been found by them, was the God known to the Hebrews, revealed in their scriptures and especially in their Messiah, and was now seeking the nations directly and calling them to himself. The pagan expressions of puzzlement and frustration against their own systems were evidence that the true God had left a witness to himself in reach of them, even during the ages when their ancestors were trying their best to escape him. And even as Paul utilizes the language of the pagans, we will find that everything he presents is thoroughly biblical. So the speech begins... Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Already we have reached a controversial point. This expression, very religious, can be taken in two drastically different ways, either as an insult or as a compliment. Interpreters defend both suggestions and try to explain why Paul would or would not begin his speech with gushing praise or overt antagonism. 
Yet I would suggest the middle ground, which is also linguistically acceptable, better fits in the context and flow of the speech. Paul is simply observing a fact, which to religiously devout people would not be insulting nor overly flattering. It was clear to him that they were worshipful people who believed in gods and acknowledged that they were worthy of honor and devotion. Paul continues, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, there were by some estimates between two and three thousand notable idols in the city. And in addition to these were temples, shrines, and altars that lined the streets. Most of the deities honored at these sites would be familiar to a good student of Greek mythology. Some of the most prominent temples in Athens were those to Nike, Roma, Bacchus, and Zeus, and these would have certainly validated Paul's observation that the Athenians considered honoring the gods an important task. But he punctuates this evidence with a further observation. I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown god. Although no such altar has been discovered in the ruins of ancient Athens, we have good reason to trust Paul's testimony. The second-century Greek traveler and geographer Pausanias mentioned seeing altars like this in Athens himself. Though his comments are somewhat ambiguous as to whether the altars he encountered were ever to a singular unknown god or merely to unknown gods in the plural, yet in the final analysis most scholars do not deny that altars to an unnamed or unknown god could have existed in Athens, and there are several possible reasons why such an altar would have been erected. One idea fairly accepted in modern scholarship is that altars being rededicated after some kind of defacement that made the form of the god no longer identifiable might lead to the generic inscription to a god or even to an unnamed god. Ultimately, However such an altar came to exist and whatever its real function was in the Greek religion, it is almost certain that it was not meant to imply that the Athenians were ignorant in regard to their religion, but that is how Paul utilized it. Verse 23 continues, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. In Romans 1, 18-28 and Acts 14, 16, Paul expressed the conviction that the Gentiles had once known God. In the ancient past, when the whole of earth had one language and one speech, and they were all together in one place, Genesis 11.1. But the forefathers of humanity in those bygone generations did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Rebellious humanity, having rejected the rule of God over them, intellectually ran away from him and exchanged his truth for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. God allowed them to go in their own way. In fact, he gave them up and delivered them over to their own lusts and to a strong delusion. However, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. In the presence of this witness... Even with their deluded hearts, there was a continuous struggle to accept the legitimacy of the religion they had created for themselves. While Athens would strongly protest against this accusation of ignorance, many of their greatest thinkers could be summoned as witnesses 
that all they had been able to accomplish on their own had left them yearning for more. In this sense, they had never stopped worshiping the one true God, even when they were engaged in express rebellion against him. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. God made the world and everything in it. Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher, acknowledged the same truth. He said, God has made all things in the cosmos. And of course, with this, the Holy Scripture agrees. Genesis 1.1 and 2.1 says God created the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. Paul reasoned from this acknowledgement that God must be greater than the creation itself. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and therefore he does not dwell in temples made with hands. It does not make sense for the great God who made all things to be confined inside a building made by men. Again, the Greek poet Euripides asked, What house built by craftsmen could enclose the form divine within enfolding walls. It might seem a little hypocritical for a Jew to accuse pagans on this point, however, since they had a temple of their own. Yet Solomon, who built the temple, had made this acknowledgement even as he prayed for its dedication. 2 Kings 8.27 But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built." The prophet Isaiah, who had seen a vision of the Lord in the Jerusalem temple, all the same agreed with Solomon and declared, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and so they came into being. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Solomon and Isaiah understood that the temple in Jerusalem was a tool God used to reveal himself to his people and to establish a relationship with them, but it was not really God's house. It could be taken out of the way, and indeed it was, but God would remain fully enthroned in power and glory. Paul continues in Acts 17.25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things— Again, this suggestion was first made to the Athenians by Euripides, who said, God, if he be truly God, has need of nothing. But even earlier, God himself revealed this fact to the Israelites. Psalm 50, 9-12 I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills." I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all of its fullness. Once again, though the Hebrew religion practiced animal sacrifice, it was not for the same motivation as the pagans. The Israelites were not feeding God. Rather, they were being taught by God lessons about sin and devotion and the cost of redemption from sin. Back to Paul's speech, now in verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord 
in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. In this section, Paul ventures into more controversial waters. Once again, Paul's words are solidly based on scriptural teaching. The Bible says that the first man, Adam, and Eve, his wife, were together the mother and father of all living, Genesis 3 and verse 20. After the flood, the three sons of Noah became the renewed source from whom the whole earth was populated, Genesis 9 and 19. But the ancient societies generally had mythological explanations for their own origins that tended to give them a special and exalted status. It would have been not merely striking, but scandalous to hear that at the base of it all there was no real difference between the Greeks and the barbarians themselves, only that God, in his providence, had allowed for the rising of one and the degrading of the other, and for his own purposes rather than theirs. Now, the purpose of God from the very beginning has been that the earth shall be filled with his knowledge and glory as the waters that cover the sea. At first, humanity resisted even the task of filling the earth and sought instead to remain together to centralize their power and strength for their own aspirations. God asserted his sovereignty when he scattered them across the face of the earth. But in their scattering, they did not fill the earth with God's knowledge, but rather with foolishness and darkness, nor with God's glory, but rather with evil and rebellion. From an observer watching history unfold, it might have appeared that mankind had successfully broken free of God and was out to make their own way in the world. Some nations were being more successful than others, but they were moving ahead quite independent of God. Paul informs that was all an illusion, or perhaps we might say a strong delusion. It was God, still king of the universe, still Lord of all, who determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. It was God who established Athens, and raised up Greece, and brought in Alexander, and then took away the power he had given to him, and gave it to the Romans. And why was God doing all this? Why would God raise up this power and topple that one? To what end? Paul goes on, So that they, that is, all men of all nations, should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The rise of the Greek philosophers, whose intellectual labors and accomplishments may properly be labeled the forces by which modern civilization was shaped, are compared here by Paul to a blind man pitifully grasping the air around him in search of an object just beside him, but in his blindness he's hopeless to find it on his own. At this point, Paul has made some bold assertions, and we might expect his audience to interrupt him in outrage, but with great genius, he undergirds his conclusions with another bevy of local witnesses. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Both the lines preceding and following Paul's admission that he is citing some of their own poets are citations. 
It was the Stoic Epimenides who said, In him we live and move and have our being. And Aretas, another Stoic, who said, We are all his offspring. Everything Paul has been affirming was really fundamentally opposed to the teachings of the Stoics and the Epicureans, and it might have even been shown that all of his citations were, in a sense, out of context. But he had shown that in their freest moments of thoughtful speculations, the fathers of this people had made observations and asked questions about God that pointed them away from all the gods they were worshiping to another one unknown to them, indeed, but now present and revealing himself in fullness, the God of Israel. On this basis, and using his last pagan citation as a proof text, Paul lays down the hammer of his speech in verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Athens boasted in its enlightenment and learning, but the most outstanding feature of the city was a monument to its ignorance. Idolatry was the most absurd practice conceivable. Paul might be a little less sarcastic here than some of the Old Testament prophets were when they attacked idols, but not too much. We ought not to think is a rebuke that simply means that the devotion to idols, the observation of which opened his speech, was something that exposed their ignorance even more than the inscription to the unknown God. Verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. These times of ignorance referred to the past epochs in which the nations went their own way, Acts 14.16, and Paul there said that they went their own way by God's permission. This, I would suggest, is the meaning of God overlooked. Whatever may be said of how God evaluated individual heathens who were groping after him, in this case Paul is contrasting the coming day of reckoning the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, when the work of his kingdom is fully accomplished and all that will be redeemed is redeemed and all that will not be redeemed is destroyed, with the past ages when, if God was terribly insulted or grieved by what the pagans were doing, they did not seem to hear about it very often. It seemed as though God was ignoring the pagans just like they were ignoring him, of course, Paul has made it clear that God was not ignoring the pagans. He was, in fact, ruling over their history and ordering their rising and falling as much as at any time. But he was not annihilating them. As he will, all who ultimately resist and reject the redeeming reign of his son. Finally, we come to Jesus, the man whom he has ordained. When Paul announced that God now commands all men everywhere to repent, it is because of the coming and work of Jesus that God has issued this universal charge to turn from rebellion. And it is to Jesus that God insists that the rebels turn, because through Jesus they might be pardoned of their rebellion. Calling Jesus the man whom he has ordained was the closest you could get to a Gentile version of the word Christ. 
By this point, Paul has left behind the questions and observations of the philosophers. On what basis does he expect these people to believe such lofty claims about Jesus and how his ministry has changed the very course of human history? Paul concludes in verse 31, He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. What greater assurance could be given than this? Something so amazing that pagans who bowed in worship to idols they themselves had made called it foolishness and absurd. There are no rivals in history, either in glory or certainty, to the resurrection of Jesus. Never has God worked such an amazing thing and then set to prove it for all time with such incontrovertible evidence, and with good reason, for God has hung all his plans in history on this event. What then will the verdict be? How will the court respond to Paul's defense of himself and his message? We will return to see that, to borrow the language of the courtroom, after a brief recess. But for now, those of us who believe may marvel at the greatness of our God, who from creation to completion manifests his perfect power and lordship over all things. Praise God and praise King Jesus, the man whom he has appointed. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless, and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.